Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. New York City Ballet, Martha Graham, Alvin Ailey, the San Francisco Ballet. These are a few of the names at the top of the world of elite dance. But professional dance today is not just about talented artists and exceptional performances. It's big business. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today we'll be talking about elite professional dance and the legal issues involved. Our guest is an expert in the field. Elena Paul is the general counsel of one of the top dance companies in the world, Alvin Ailey. Elena, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you, Joel. Happy to be here. So when you think of dance, it's uh, a talented artist or even an individual who's going through a series of movements, of steps. How can that be something that's proprietary? When you think about a dance performance, uh, a lot of times for the audience, we're really focusing on the artists on the stage. But it, just like you, when you see a film, you're looking at the actors. But behind the performance, unless the choreographer is performing in his own piece, there's someone who created the dance. And it is the uh, person who comes up with the uh, cast and the uh, particular steps and the gestures and the combination of those elements who is like essentially the author of the dance. And then that can be performed by other artists. So in the dance world, that's the as you said, the author or the inventor of the actual dances. Yeah. So why don't we talk about the choreographer and what rights they have? Generally, are choreographers independent or are they associated with dance companies? The answer is both. Most ballet companies will have their own standard work that they do all the time, like things that belong to them, and then they will actually license new works for a period of three years is about the typical um, license or uh, the time that you'll put a new dance into the repertoire um, because that gives you a chance to tour the world or tour the United States and then you want to bring in new works. You know, for companies like Mark Morris or uh, Merce Cunningham or Alvin Ailey, they, you have your home choreographer and so Alvin Ailey's works are always performed and those works are owned by the company now, of course, um, that he's, he's passed away. But we also have contracts and relationships with other choreographers, and we'll bring their works into the repertoire for a period of years. Three years is the typical license. When you buy or when you license a piece, mm -hmm. you know, if it's this step after this step, is that the way you have to do it, or you kind of have a, a freedom once you've licensed it. So I think what the what's different about licensing intellectual property in dance companies is that those licenses almost always come with services. Those contracts are bundled intellectual property license with the services of the choreographer or the lighting design license with the services of the lighting designer to make sure that it's right for this particular production. So the answer is I could write a license ostensibly with, you know, to license a Balanchine dance and get the words in the license to allow my artistic director or my dance company to change it, but the Balanchine Trust is not going to allow their name to be put on that, 
Right, so there's an element of control. You can kind of frame it in trademark, but it's really about what does it mean to call it a balance sheet dance? And that's where the services come in to make sure, because this isn't a static item. It isn't like licensing a, you know, the use of uh, an existing painting to put in the background of a movie. It has this complex uh, performative aspect. So you're, you're using the things and the people that are performing it are humans and artists, so there's a level of interpretation but it is the choreographer's right to say that, yes, that is my dance. And so there's that aspect. So where does the director of the performance fit in? Um, so the artistic director is the person who sets kind of the vision for your dance company, right? So they look, uh, and they are also involved in recruiting and um, assisting the performers as artists, right, to keep that that group together and to make sure that they have everything they need. Um, and so the artistic director typically selects the choreography and he's putting together the programming for the year or for any particular production. When we think of a director of a film, is how does that compare with a director of a major elite dance performance? I think that's uh, pretty, pretty similar, right? Because the director kind of knows where you're trying to go. That is, you're trying to go to the eight o'clock curtain. And he's, he has to make sure that he identifies the choreographers, right? And we secure the licenses and all related rights that might come with the dance, you know, all the different elements in performing arts. You're all focused on the eight o'clock on Tuesday the 9th, right? And so you have to get all these complex elements together and ready to be at the highest level at that moment in time. But what about in his process? Is, is the director generating intellectual property assets for himself, intellectual property assets for the dance company? Yes, and there are a lot of interesting legal cases about the role of the choreographer slash artistic director uh, and his relationship to the company, particularly with respect to the ownership of the choreography that, that he or she may have created. Well, let's talk about some of these disputes. Yeah, so the most famous or the most, um, the one that went on, uh, may, I think the longest, is the, the case related to the Martha Graham Dance Company. Um, Martha Graham, so his, if we back up like 10 or 20 years, intellectual property was not something that was commonly discussed. And in the dance world, it was not something that uh, people focused on. They weren't focusing on those assets in the way that, you know, uh, copyright and uh, intellectual property assets are more commonly discussed these days. So as a live performance, they were just trying to deliver the best uh, most excellent show that they could. Right, and they were always making things, you know, new things. And you know, Martha Graham was a very prolific artist. She had her own dance company, uh, and she was in her own relationship to the company. Sometimes she was an employee, and sometimes she was not. As lawyers understand, whether or not someone is an employee can answer, start to answer the question, who owns the intellectual property that is made by the person who is making that under the status of an employee? So generally, if you're an employee, the owner of the, the employer would own the asset. Exactly. Culturally, however, in the dance world, 
dance companies would want the opposite result because culturally and, and because of the role of the artist, it would be very strange uh, to say to the choreographer to disconnect the artist from the asset because it, it really is a reflection of the artist. It, it, for many dance companies just would assume everyone working in them historically believed, whether it was legally true or not, that it was the choreographer who owned those assets. So if we go back to that case, what happened is Martha Graham dies and she leaves her estate to a third party who was outside of her, the Martha Graham Dance Company. Bad things happen and that person at some point decides to leave the dance company and to take the intellectual property assets, including the name Martha Graham, with him to use those assets somewhere else. And they get into a seven year fight about who owns what. And it wasn't something that had been examined, but was interesting upshot of that case is that it made a lot of um, companies, Paul Taylor's dance company, Merce Cunningham dance company, really think about these assets and think about what they felt was right and what was the best legal structure and best you know, planning for posthumous planning uh, to maintain the quality of those assets so they, they meant something. So it sounds like you have a dance company who ran into trouble because they weren't protecting or weren't making clear that they had ownership of their core works. Or weren't focusing on who owned it. So it became a fight about who owns what and it was very complicated uh, to figure out because as I mentioned before, she was sometimes in status as an employee and sometimes my feeling is when there was no money, she basically wasn't paid because she was more interested in the art going on than her drawing whatever salary or being an employee. So that status wasn't, didn't have value to her. What had value was getting the work made and having it performed. And what was the outcome? Um, and in the end, the Martha Graham Dance Company retained ownership of the most valuable of the, of the um, dances and the costumes and they retain, they got the ability to use that name. The Martha Dance uh, Company is back and very strong. And, and, uh, but it really was eye-opening for the whole community because they're just, it just wasn't something that people focused on. You know, lawyers would think, oh, if you're an employee, of course it belongs to the company. But again, it's not, it's, it wasn't culturally acceptable to, to somehow say, you're an employee and that belongs to us and not to you. Let's go back and talk about the artists. Okay. Um, we've spoken about the choreographers. Those are the inventors of the dance steps. How about the performers themselves? Do they maintain rights or property over their moves, over their actions? Typically, no. Um, so they are, um, in, in dance companies, you have uh, sometimes union. Uh, dancers and then non-union. Um, our company has both uh, a first company and a second company, with some AGMA members and some people who are not. AGMA is AGMA, the dance union? Yeah, is the American Guild of Musical Artists. We are hiring them. They're, they're on one-year contracts that are, uh, and they're hired to perform. So, and where, where they start to retain rights or control is if the dance company wants to uh, license their images or their performances 
for a commercial purpose, for example, uh, for an ad or uh, on a billboard that's not related to the, own, the dance company itself, to third parties, then you would uh, you know, kind of go back to the artist to see whether they wanted to do that and you know, come up with some sort of uh, contract uh, to purchase that aspect. They are under contract to perform, but typically, I mean, sometimes you'll have performers who are also choreographers, but if that happens, you'll, the dance company will have a, it doesn't come with their performance contract, it would be some sort of a separate relationship, and then there may be some sort of separate contract or separate, um, you know, acknowledgement and possibly uh, compensation for those services. It's not a normal thing for most performers. So could we think of a professional dance company in the similar vein as a professional sports franchise where the main assets are the dancers themselves? I think that's a fair analogy, although the vigorous and uh, defense and and use of like, you know, trademarks and control. We don't have the same control over our performers as the and NFL your dancers does don't make the same yeah. salaries either. Yes, hopefully, but they can get hit in the head, unfortunately, sometimes. So it can, um, be, it can be dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. It, I think that what people under, understand about, uh, especially a company that tours a lot, um, is how physically vigorous it is uh, and the requirements, you know, for someone to be able to get to the level of being able to perform for New York City Ballet or Alvin Ailey, the millions of dollars of investment and education and training and ongoing maintenance of their uh, physical bodies just to be able to perform at that level. It's, uh, so they are incredible athletes in, in a similar way. Let's go, I guess, deeper into the work, the legal aspects of representing the company and representing the dancers themselves. Within the union, there are certain rights and protections. Yeah, that was actually a really interesting uh, aspect of my work is to uh, look at the way that the concerns become expressed in the contracts. Uh, and then, so the employment contracts with the artists will have all sort of specific requirements about uh, traveling, travel schedules, um, the ability of a rest time, um, what sort of facilities. If, uh, so there's certain, certain negotiated breaks or a certain number of hours absolutely. they can work in a day. Absolutely. And then the, the, the way that the company uh, deals with that is that when we're negotiating with promoters or we're going on tour, we have to make sure, for example, that all the hotel rooms have bathtubs uh, because that is something that dancers need on the road. Dancers and, like to have a soak. Exactly. They absolutely need it in order to recover in, to either get on the plane and go somewhere else or Do professional dancers fly business class? <laughs> I think they would like to. I'm not, I don't think they do. Right. I think they should, though. So I see Alvin Ailey ads in the subway or on the street in Manhattan. Are those dancers entitled to compensation for their appearance in those ads? So basically, if, the, if a dancer is, to, is doing something to promote the company that they work for, that is included in the contract. If, if the company wants to work with a third party to promote that company's product, the dancer would be paid extra, as well as the company would probably be paid extra for that service. So if Gap wanted to hi hire Alvin Ailey dancers to do a commercial, 
that would be outside the scope. There would be additional compensation for the dancers for, for right. something like that. Right, absolutely. Another unique aspect of the elite dance world is the structure. So when, we're, when we think of professional sports, when we think of uh, professional uh, film, these are all for-profit organizations. That's not always the case in dance. Well, what's kind of interesting in dance is historically, many choreographers would have two parts of what they did. You would possibly offer your services, uh, typically to Broadway or some sort of other commercial uh, operation like in film, on a for-profit side, and then you would also have your kind of fine art nonprofit dance company. Uh, that you may also do services for. What has happened these days, all the major dance companies, because the business model works, is our nonprofit tax exempt organizations. That is, um, it's enormously expensive to produce uh, and perform dance. And so, although the ticket prices you know, may or may not seem expensive to you, that ticket price, just like in opera, does not support the cost of the, of the performances. And so that cost is subsidized with donations and sponsorships and government grants, et cetera. Let's talk about donations and sponsorships. Essentially, what you're saying is without donations and sponsorships, ballet companies would be running in the red. That's true. They're, these are, subs, in a sense, publicly supported institutions. Um, and so that public support comes in, in a number of different uh, ways, including there are an enormous number of individuals who love dance. They may come from dance backgrounds. They just like the art of it. And so they help support uh, these companies. And one, they're supporting the performance aspect of it, but many, and I would say most major dance companies, also have other aspects of the way they express their mission, typically through educational programs, and a lot of dance companies have kind of rushed into the void in school system uh, when arts funding came out of public schools in particular, and that so we have amazing artists and teachers, and so we supported by charity, donate, charitable donations, provide that programming to schools who otherwise uh, wouldn't be able to offer any kind of arts programming to their, to their students. So let's talk a little bit about corporate sponsorships. These are companies that are coming in and supporting a professional dance company, but they're getting something in return. Yes, and, and what they're getting is uh, recognition for their support. And there's actually an interesting legal issue about uh, the nature of that relationship, and we are trying to uh, keep it from going over the line uh, of becoming advertising. Because advertising to the nonprofit would be recognizable as income and potentially taxable. Remember, nonprofit dance companies are exempt from corporate income tax, and so the relationship we have with sponsors is a technically classified as a kind of a sponsorship under federal tax law. So we are allowed to give you certain benefits, but if we want to sell you advertising, we could do it if we wanted to. We just may have to, on our books, report it as income uh, and pay taxes on it. So it's not something that most companies want to do. So you'll see that there are certain types of things that 
nonprofits can give sponsors uh, that are pretty standard and that the IRS has recognized are not um, advertising. So in a sense, you have to toe the line between uh, being able to recognize the sponsor. So you can say something like uh, Coca-Cola uh, has generously donated to our event, but you can't say Coca-Cola, the best soft drink out there. Exactly. It's about the, exactly the, the point you make, which is say the best, the only, that kind of thing. What's interesting is a lot of corporations these days have trademark um, slogans that have qualitative language in As them. As part of their names. Yes. Um, so that uh, we have to try to figure out a creative way to recognize the very generous support without somehow converting what you're trying to do into an unintended consequence of being taxable income to the company. Traditionally, they came out of a nonprofit foundation part of your corporation. So you'd have mobile corporation and the mobile foundation and that the, the nonprofits would be dealing with another nonprofit. And so when we said things about qualified sponsorships, they understood They're what we were talking about. Um, these days, most of that support comes out of marketing department and companies. And so um, there's a little bit more of a conversation and an educational process because the people on the for-profit side of companies aren't necessarily familiar. So it seems to me there's a lot of legal issues involved here. There's protecting your intellectual property rights. There's uh, curating the process of, of obtaining donations and working with corporate sponsors. What does it take to bring a dance company uh, to the top level? I think for a nonprofit company, the success is to be able to have a clear mission and to focus your activities and your messaging on that mission and to also adjust over time to see how that mission fits into today's world. Are there any, I guess, weird stories, any uh, war stories as an as a elite dance lawyer that you could share with us? You know, one of the kind of emergency type of things that might come up on the road is that uh, you may be traveling so that half of your props and costumes, et cetera, might be coming by um, freight and the rest, everybody else is flown in. So uh, we had one situation in Europe where the costumes just didn't get there. And under our contract and also the culture of uh, the nature of what we're doing is that we would not perform somebody's choreography in costumes other than those specified without the permission of the choreographer. So when you're there and the curtain is about to go up but you don't have the costumes and you have to you know, go out to the local dance store to get anything you know, for them to wear that was appropriate, that was also a quick emergency negotiation with the choreographer and the existing costume designer to make sure that you could make a quick selection and they could live with that for that one night while you're waiting for the costumes to catch up with your company. So it, what sounds like a lost shipment turns into a legal issue and then a quick negotiation and hopefully a, a good resolution. Yeah, and our production department and the production department in uh, any major dance company is really all about 
you know, contracts. There's music licenses dealing with publishers. You're dealing with all the different artists who are contributing elements to the dance. Uh, and you have to be uh, super aware of all the different artists who are entitled to comp tickets, for example, to see the premiere of their art. And it becomes like a, a, a really uh, complex management of, you know, all the different obligations under these uh, contracts and, and the timing of it and whether, you know, you can get, for example, if a choreographer called us and said, oh, I'm going to be in San Francisco and you guys are there, I would like house seats to that, uh, to the performance of my work. That would be a consideration of, uh, one, we would look at the contract with the choreographer to see you know, whether we're obliged to do it. Uh, it probably says something like, uh, if that wasn't the first premiere of it or the premiere in New York because that's our home, we may say we'll use our best efforts. Then we'll look at our contract with the venue to see whether or not we can just automatically get those seats or whether it's some sort of other negotiation with the promoter or the, you know, are we self-presenting? Do we have our own tickets? And so it would be uh, kind of, you know, at least four or five contracts to analyze and answer the question, can you go see uh, the opening of your own uh, work in San Francisco when we're there? So if a dancer or a choreographer or a director offers you free tickets, you should, uh, you should think about all the legal effort exactly. that went into that. Exactly, and also read the contract on the back of the actual ticket. And for those of you who are listening for MCLE credit to this interview with Elena Paul, the code for getting MCLE credit is 40715. You can enter that at the website on the podcast page. The code is 40715. And now back to the interview. So we've talked about the, the legal tradition and we've talked about the current legal landscape. How about the future? Is the dance world changing, and how is your job as a lawyer changing to keep up with it? Um, so I would say that there is a kind of a shift in business practices in the dance world that kind of comes out of the Martha Graham self-examination uh, around the issue of who owns the choreography. And one of the things that's kind of uh, new to dance is that a lot of younger choreographers, newer choreographers are interested in the for-profit business model. Uh, so to have some clarity about owning and controlling the assets they make. Um, and so I see a lot of, uh, in our contracts with choreographers from around the world, that they are taking business cues from other areas of the arts, for example, I just did a deal with a choreographer from Europe who, like a fashion company, segregated his intellectual property assets and the operating company for his dance company into two different business models and, and then had licensing relationships between the two and then with external parties. So it seems that the dancing world uh, may be moving a little bit closer to the business world. Yes, but hopefully that won't harm the... Um, the end product. Well, Elena Paul, thank you so much for walking us through this fascinating conversation. And I know that next time I go to a dance performance, I won't just be admiring the incredible spectacle and talent on stage, but I'll be thinking of you and all of the legal effort that goes in behind it. Thank you so much, Joel. Thanks for being here. Okay. And tune in soon for more on exciting legal issues here at Talks on Law. 
For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.